0: We have our 25th year anniversary, and how could we better open the whole uh, series of events this year than with Joe Stiglitz. Um, it's often said that a speaker needs no introduction, and I think he really does not need an introduction. Uh, we will talk about some of his professional experiences, I'm sure, later, um, Just to say, his present affiliation is with Columbia Business School in New York and the Brooks World Poverty Institute at the University of Manchester. And one thing, when you look at his um, CV, I would not recommend it to any PhD student who tries to finish his or her PhD at the moment because you would top yourself when you see what an outburst somebody like Joe Stiglitz had when most of us Um, you know, at an age in the mid-twenties when we study a little and party a lot, not-so-young Joe, he wrote in 1969, 11 articles came out in the best journals, Econometrica, Quarterly Journal, whatever, uh, on capital theory and investment, risk behavior, Uh, distribution of income and wealth, effect of taxation on risk-taking, growth theory, urban-rural migration in developing countries, things that led directly to his John Bates Clark Medal, which is basically the Nobel Prize for under-40-year-olds and then later the Nobel Prize for those Um, (laughs) over-40-year-olds. And this wide range of his scholarly work is also characteristic of this book. You will find, and I hope you all do read it, uh, that it ranges on so many issues from inequality to the monetary policy and so on, that the idea of our conversation tonight is that we get basically the big picture, and then you can follow up with a much richer account that he gives in his book. The idea would be that we talk for about 40 minutes, and then I open up for um, debate, (coughs) Q&A, And then Joe was so kind to agree to uh, do a big book signing outside. So, and then he's off to news night at Radio 4. If you can't get enough, you can listen to that tonight. <laughs> so, on this theme of a very wide range and uh, a broad uh, picture of what's wrong with the euro, because that is the message, <laughs> Basically, it's U.S. economists from very different angles, from you know, people like Martin Feldstein to Paul Krugman, Robert Barrow to Jamie Galbraith, have criticized the Euro experiments as basically a failure. Um, so what does your book add to this long list of criticisms?
1: Um, well, uh, it does agree with all those. It tries to give first a little data about uh, 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 how bad things are. And uh, that keeps getting worse. So, so uh, there's always more data. But I think if I, I were to say what, what were the what was the most you know, uh, uh, important two intellectual contributions, uh, the first was uh, uh, to um, uh, point out that the fundamental problem was not uh, policies austerity. It was uh, that the Euro was flawed from birth. It was the structure of the Eurozone itself. So there's a lot of talk about structural problems in Greece and and Spain and Portugal. Every country has structural problems. I could talk about the structural problems in the United States at uh, at great length. Uh, Every country has structural problems, but those structural problems do not result in 50% youth unemployment, uh, 25% declining GDP, they result in a lower standard of living for the country with those structural problems. But they don't result in these massive macroeconomic uh, failures. So uh, my argument is, uh, is that even the best of economic managers, economic czars, could not have made the euro work with the current structure. So it was flawed at birth. And uh, the, the, the particular thing that I, I uh, point out and spend a whole chapter on is that while they recognized that you had to have a great deal of similarity among the countries if you're going to share a currency, that that was the whole optimal currency, and therefore you needed to have convergences. They weren't there, and they wanted to converge. They actually created an economic structure that led to divergings for the countries to move far apart, further apart. I mean, it's obviously happened. The rich have gotten richer, the poor poorer, the gap between the rich and the poor within and between countries has gotten larger. But what I try to argue is that it was basically the w- built in to the structure of the Eurozone. One, um, and just to elaborate on that just one moment uh, more, um, the... Big mistake, and one of the reasons I was interested in, uh, in studying uh, the euro, the big mistake was it was another example of you might call it neoliberal ideology, simplistic economics being built into the design of an organization where you needed more subtlety. So they thought, for instance, that free mobility of capital would result in greater efficiency, and that would be one of the reasons why the euro would bring greater prosperity. It would facilitate the movement of capital. What they didn't realize is that uh, behind that, that behind uh, any bank, banking system, financial system, is the government. So uh, the way I illustrate that is. Uh, 2009, you know, we had the crisis. Uh, 2008, uh, where do, in the, it was caused by our, our banking systems, partly caused by our banking system's failures. Where did money move? Money flowed into the United States. Was it because our banking system had proven themselves, and into our banks? Was it because our banks had shown them to be the masters of the universe, the, the best banking system in the world, where everybody would want to put their money because they managed risk wonderfully and they knew how to get high returns? No, obviously. The reason they came to the United States was that our government had the deepest pockets. And they were owned by, our government was owned by Wall Street, to put it in a mild uh, way. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, they had given $700 billion, $700 billion to uh, the banks. And I was on a, you know, a a, a conference call to try to decide on what was the Democratic Party response to the Republican decision to offer $700 billion. And the general view among these financiers who were dominant in that meeting, why did you limit it to $700 billion? And the answer was, well, a trillion sounded too big. And don't worry, there's more there if you need it. And so calm down. you know, This is just the opening offer. So the point I'm making is that, that money flowed to the United States because our government was willing to support our ba- banking system and had the resources. So how does that translate uh, to Europe? Uh, Spain has a problem, what happens to money in the Spanish banking system? Obviously, if you have a choice of putting your money in a Spanish bank or in a German bank, you're going to move your money out of a Spanish bank and move it to Germany. And with a single currency and a single market, it's easier to do that. And so money goes out. Well, then what happens then? Well, then the banks aren't able to lend as much. Now, in their simplistic models, that wasn't a big deal. A small dry cleaner or a small grocery store in Spain could borrow from a big German bank. Well, that's nonsense. You know, information is local, and this is where it links related to some of my own work on e- economics information. Information is local, and if you want to borrow, if you're a small business in Spain, you have to borrow from a Spanish banking system. So they created this dynamic where, as money left the Spanish banking system, there was a contraction in lending to businesses. That meant there was what I call private austerity. It was much stronger than, uh, as strong as the public austerity. That leads to a, a, a downturn in the economy. That means the Spanish economy is weaker. That means the Spanish Government's revenue is less. There's even less confidence in the ability of the Spanish Spanish government to bail out the banks. And that means more money starts to leave. So they constructed a system where once you get a negative shock, once you were at a problem, you got weaker. And money went to the stronger. And I could go through There are lots of aspects of this. But that so the w-
0: extraordinary monetary policy measures, in your view, didn't make any difference. Because, frankly, I mean, at some point, neither the German banks nor the U.S. banks nor the Spanish banks could really borrow from each other because there was a run in the wholesale market. They didn't trust each other. So they all borrowed from their central banks. Um, did that not? What what was wrong in it, the euro area with that
1: mechanism? So, so it worked a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it particularly where this massive intervention in um, uh, by the ECB. Uh, I mean, another problem with the, uh, uh, the the structure of the of the euro, and I want to come back to the the underlying philosophy at the moment it was constructed was that if governments would only keep their deficits low and if the government made sure through the central bank that inflation was low, the private sector would take care of itself and would ensure the economy would be at full employment. So the, the – and, and that was an idea, idea that was very strong at the time – uh, the euro was created, uh, Maastricht, in, in 1992. That was after the uh, Latin American crisis. The Latin American crisis was clearly government overspending, and that was a view that was widely spread. Uh, if they had formed the euro ten years later, or even eight years later, the East Asia crisis was totally different. East Asia crisis was caused by the private sector, the governments had a surplus. It was misdoings of the private sector that caused the problem. And you would not have had the faith that they had in 92, that if only you kept inflation low and budget deficits low, everything would, would work out uh, right. Well, that, come back to the monetary policy, they were told to focus on inflation. In 2011, as the European economy is not doing very well, you know, double dip, they, they saw a glimmer of inflation and unlike US Federal Reserve where mandate is not only inflation, but employment growth and financial stability, their focus was inflation. They actually raised the interest rate twice in 2011 and that made the economy slow down. Now, Once Draghi came in, he had a more balanced perspective, but was still working within this mandate of a focus on inflation. And his extraordinary measures enabled, saved, the sovereign debt market. You know, the sovereign debt market, the the interest rates were soaring. uh, uh, Nobody would buy the bonds of a number of these countries, and so uh, the prices were falling. And so uh, the extraordinary measures meant that the European Central Bank started buying them, and that, of course, lowered their interest rates. But that, let me say, one of the reasons I was so interested in the euro because it illustrates so many of the fallacies in, in some of the modern reasoning about economics. Lowering the interest rates does not mean that finance is going to be available for a small business. Mm. So the fact that the interest rates got lower did not translate into an increase in the supply of credit to small businesses in Spain or Portugal. And you can see the data, the magnitude of the decline in lending to small and medium-sized enterprises was just enormous. Mm. And that was even after they <clears throat> began these, these extraordinary measures
0: no i mean they have realized that and since mid 2015 we have a program that uh, mobilizes 318 billion uh, euros by mid 2018 so far it seems to be on on track which shows you how how much the credit dearth is in the uh, small and
1: medium can, can enterprises. i just say one more thing about about mm-hmm. this kind of sure. you know uh, this idea that all you should focus on you know First, they just focused on inflation, and then the instrument that they focused, or the intermediate variable they thought about, was the interest rate. Now they're talking about or they have negative interest rates, and they've not worked. And uh, if they wreck some of the more non – some some of my work, maybe, is what I'm saying Uh, (laughs) – i th- they would have realized that it was not likely to work and the reason is that these negative interest rates if not done extraordinarily carefully actually weaken the balance sheets of the banks they have to pay when they have money on deposit at the european central bank well if the banks are weaker their ability to lend is weaker so the banks are a critical institution in the, in, the, in the framework of providing credit for small and medium-sized enterprises. You know, big companies can borrow everywhere, but, but when, when you're talking about you know a very large part of, of uh, many of these economies are these small and medium-sized enterprises. And so actually in some of the countries uh, that have tried negative interest rates, actually lending has contracted. Mm-hmm. And in almost none of the countries that have tried it has there been the expansion. And that was predicted.
0: Yeah. But so you're saying the global financial the, – the euro area crisis is not simply a particular manifestation of the global or the North Atlantic, we should say, North Atlantic financial crisis. <laughs> and the one thing you told us that is different is that there is no fiscal backup to the central bank, the money. It is a non-state money that, that, that is issued. If the Euro architects had listened to the economists, to the good economists, who <laughs> yeah,
1: would exactly have... Yeah, exactly. I was saying there were many economists that were advising it. Yeah, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so,
0: yeah. so
2: I don't want to say and that they didn't listen. Some of the
0: best, like Aiken Green and whatever. Mm. Mm. So, how much should the Euro architects have listened to economists, and to which piece of economic
1: theory? Uh, so that's almost like asking the following question. If they had listened to me or some other uh, of my friends, uh, could they have made the euro work? Yes. And I think the answer is yes. Uh, Surprised. uh, (laughs) uh, But uh, I'm not sure that they would have liked uh, what we would have told them. So I'm not sure that politically what we would have said was what they would have wanted to hear, and then they would go back to their favorite economists at the end. So, you know, what are some of the things I, I would have, uh, we would have talked about? Well, uh, just give, you know, take the last example that I gave you, which was you had a system where money left the weak countries and went to the strong countries. Easy way of stopping that, having common deposit insurance throughout the region. Uh, and you know that 's what we have in the United States. If the state of Washington had been had to bail out Washington Mutual, which was the largest bank in the country from a, you know a moderate small state, Washington, Washington state would be in bad trouble. but it wasn 't bailed out by the state of Washington. It was bailed out by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is a you know a, a federal system. <laughs> So a, an essential a piece, if you're going to avoid that kind of divergence, was to have common deposit insurance. So I would say, that's absolutely essential. Uh, another thing I would have said, uh, and let me say, what their answer would have been, moral hazard. Uh, That's what uh, Germany says. Whenever you propose anything uh, that that makes sense, they they, they say there's moral hazard, you know, that people will take advantage of that and uh, they'll run their banks into the ground taking advantage of deposit insurance. You know, and there's a I mean, the Bank
0: of England here said it, too, when we had the queues forming outside of Northern Rock and said there must be co-payment and we will not just bail them out like that and force there for the
1: government to yeah.
0: take and, and the And
1: the right answer to that is, well, you have to have some kind of regu- uh, supervision and regulation. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you could have deposit insurance and no supervision and regulation, of course, doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But... But, uh, uh, you know, you can't ask the ordinary depositor to, mo- to, to monitor the banks. I mean, that, you know, if I wanted to figure out, wait, when, the European Banking Authority couldn't figure out which banks in Europe were going to go b- belly up. How could an ordinary depositor monitor the banks? I so mean, that, we had that,
0: national de- deposit insurance. So, and I, the EU had actually harmonized it, raised the... Uh, the requirements on this thing. And they
1: should, should have, they should have had a single, you know, so, uh, one for the whole EU. And, mm-hmm. and that's sort of a common risk sharing. Uh, the official words that Germany says is we are not a transfer union. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But by when they use that, they say we don't want to have mutual insurance. And uh, you can't get it to work if you're not going to have that kind of mutual insurance. So that's one example. A second one <clears throat> is what was it? than the single currency basically did is it said you can't adjust your exchange rate. But if you can't adjust your exchange rate, that means the relative price in different countries is, has a kind of rigidity. And so you have to adjust the real exchange rate. If you can't adjust the nominal, you have to adjust the relative prices. And uh, there are two ways of adjusting the relative prices. I mean, what happened in the first eight years of the euro is that uh, there was this excessive exuberance over the elimination of exchange rate risk, and money flowed in to Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal in the belief that these were now safe, forgetting about the fact that there still were lots of other risks and um, one of the problems was, again, that same ideology that I mentioned before didn't want to intervene in these excessively unstable capital flows. You know, when I, 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 you know, I went to Spain, I talked to the uh, 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 people in the central bank, and I said, look, you're creating a real estate bubble. And that's going to break, and we've seen that all over the world. And they say, you know, are you expecting us to be smarter than the private sector? And if the private sector says that money should be going building more houses in Spain than in the rest of Europe altogether, who are we to say that that's a mistake? Well, (laughs)
0: uh, I mean, you're probably right, and they may then have uh, sp- talked the talk of their political masters, but the, uh, the Banco de España had invented almost macroprudential policies well, they, with his capital. They, they and and were the, and then they, told to turn it off at, to, in 2004, partly because then German or French banks could just do the
1: credit. Yeah, that's exactly the point. They had these, some of these precautions before, and then the ideology says, don't do it. <laughs> Yeah. And then you, you created it. So, in a way, they create the euro helped create the imbalances. But then, so the point I want to make so that the relative price in, uh, had to adjust, and there are two ways of adjusting the relative price. One is to have German prices go up, and the other one is to have Spanish and Greek prices go down. Well. Uh, the, easy, the right solution would have been to have German prices go up. And why do I say that? Because there are basic asymmetries of adjustment. When you lower the price, when you lower prices, say, in Spain, if people have borrowed in euros and wages and prices in Spain go down, what does that do? It means that the real value of their debts have gone up. That's an increase in leverage, And the crisis of 2008 was in part caused by excessive leverage. The solution to a problem of excess leverage is not going to be let's increase the leverage even more. And that was the German solution. So what you needed to do was to have some more inflation in Europe, not a high in Germany, uh, rather than trying to push wages and prices down in in the crisis country. And and Germany wouldn't accept it. So there are... You know, as part of the structure of the Eurozone, I would have said you have a tax on surplus countries because if you have a surplus, you're causing some other country to have a deficit, a uh, tax on surplus. That was an idea that Keynes had promoted. Uh, and you have the, the the requirement that when you have these kinds of imbalances, the country that, uh, that has uh, – uh, uh, the relatively strong country, the country with small, uh, surpluses, has to increase its minimum wage, has to in- have slightly expansionary policies.
0: So how could you improve on Keynes? Because as you know, the U.S., uh, administration presented by uh, Harrison White did not accept the proposal. Why should the Germans accept that
1: proposal? Well, the proposal? It, it was wrong for us to it was wrong for us to 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 reject the idea, and it's wrong of Germany to reject the idea. Why now, is
0: it wrong? As an economist, you would talk about the incentives for the Germans or the U.S. Americans now, at the so time. So, what is their incentive? The, so, the
1: basic think? idea the Kings had was that you know everybody thinks of deficits as being a bad thing. The basic arithmetic of international trade is, if any country has a deficit, some other country has to have a surplus. You know, economists differ about lots of things, but this is the result I just gave you is one thing that, that the
0: world is a closed economy that, that, that we can all agree that on.
1: That everybody, street. as long as trade with Mars is limited, <laughs> uh, that that roughly the sum of the surpluses has to equal the sum of the deficits. Okay. So if Germany has a surplus, that means some other country has a deficit. The deficits are the problem. As they show up and they, they, they cause crises. But the surplus countries, in a sense, cause the deficits because if they pursue the policies that lead to their having a surplus, they force some other country to have deficit. And that's why Keynes said, uh, let, let me put another, the way the Keynes would have articulated it was more that Uh, the surplus countries are uh, contributing to a lack of aggregate demand that they're producing, but they're not consuming. And that's depressing the global economy. And they are therefore imposing an externality on others. And whenever you impose an externality, you ought to correct that externality, like a pollution tax, with a tax. And so he proposed and I proposed a, a tax on surplus countries to discourage them from having these, you know, particularly not moderate surpluses, we're talking about when when they're excessive. And if you remember the discussion, uh, and the students won't remember, but, but uh, uh, if you remember the discussion before the 2008 crisis, um, there was all the discussion of global imbalances, and how global imbalances led to an uh, unstable uh, global economy, and there would be, a, their expression was, a disorderly unwinding of the global imbalances. The fact of the matter is that Germany's surpluses now are larger than China's, both absolutely and as a percentage of GDP. So if you think that China was a source of global imbalances, the G7 got together once a year and bashed China about its uh, surpluses, if you think that they were a problem, and I think there is a global consensus across economists on that issue, then you have to say Germany's surpluses are a problem. They view them as a virtue, and they can't embed, can't understand this as a, to put it in a more technical, as a general equilibrium problem. They can't understand that when they create a surplus, they create a, uh, somebody else has a deficit. And they keep saying, everybody ought to have surpluses. And we keep trying to explain to them, that can happen. <laughs> you know? uh, and, you know, that's, that, that's one of those examples where we've, you know, failed. And I don't know why we haven't been able to explain this basic element of logic, but we, we failed.
0: But in that, I mean, one of the great strengths, I think, of your book is um, that you actually say the whole issue with the, the euro area is, in the end, political. So how does the, can the politics be changed? How does it have to change in order to unblock the, the, the possible solution?
1: Yeah. So, uh, again, yeah, I think this is an important point. You know, we talked, economists talked about, the importance of economic convergence and economic similarity to make a common currency work. But I've become increasingly convinced that there's another element, which is political solidarity and political similarity, political convergence. And one way of thinking about it is the following. There is no way you could construct a set of rules ex ante that you could put Europe or any system on autopilot, you know, first of all, we have to figure, you know, understand we aren't going to be able to agree on what those rules ought to be. But, but even if we, th- there is no possibility of constructing a set of rules, and therefore, you're going to have to have policymaking. And when you have policymaking, you have to have decision making, there are going to be disagreements. The question is, how deep and fundamental are those disagreements, and if those disagreements are very deep and fundamental, there's going to be very deep and fundamental unhappiness. And uh, this, is in a way, goes to the broader issue of uh, economic polities. You know, what are the right units in which people ought to be together? What, what are the degrees of federalism and how do you make you, – you, you're trying to get diverse systems – uh, bring together people with a given degree of diversity, allow enough differentiation flexibility that this diverse system can work, and yet get enough advantages of harmonization and that 's sort of the art of 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 you might say fiscal f- federalism mm-hmm. and um for that to to work uh, to have these larger political entities, there has to be enough Congruence in beliefs, uh, and that I think is is in a way the deepest uh, problem because, um, and uh, you can see it in, in two ways. One of them, uh, straightforward. Um, they've had these policy decisions: what to do with uh, the crisis countries. Most economists would say that. Uh, you need to stimulate econ- economy that's in a recession. That the idea of uh, Hooverite—what do I call Hooverite? Austerity doesn't work. There are a few people, even in this country, that have that idea, but but uh, they they have some more of the rhetoric. In Spain, when they actually, and
0: Ireland, they all buy what? into it. In Spain, Ireland, they're everywhere N- they everywhere
1: But 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 uh, so it has a certain political rhetoric. But but you know, I would have thought that after. The Herbert Hoover succeeded in converting the stock market crash of '29 into the Great Depression, and after the IMF succeeded in converting the downturns in East Asia and Latin America from into recessions and deep depressions, and after all the research in economics on on you know there's not a single uh, model that is used that uh, really says that austerity works, and even the IMF and I don't know how many of you study IMF, it's not a left-wing organization. Uh, it, uh, it, I didn't
0: know Read Stiglitz on this. <laughs>
1: uh, has said that contractionary policies, guess what, are contractionary. And austerity <laughs> leads to economic downturns. And they've come out and said you needed to have a stimulus. So when you have this deep divide where the dominant view among economists, dominant view in the South is austerity doesn't work and you need stimulus. Even the Republican Party in the United States, when you have a downturn like in 2008, said you have to have a stimulus. So when that's the dominant ethic, and then you have another group Saying no, we want to try again. Hooverite policy, Hoover, you know, with the president uh, Herbert Hoover, and we have to get budget balance. That's that will restore confidence. Uh, that's a that's a divide that's too big to to I think to bridge. Uh, and I saw that, uh, you know, I was head of the Economic Policy Committee of the OECD. And uh, in '95, and uh, we would have policy discussions over, uh, uh, you know, macroeconomic policy, and German policymakers even then were, I won't say unique, but but were really a really small minority compared to to the rest. So, um, and the reason I mention that it's not just. Merkel, you can't just explain one person. It's, it's, it's much more widespread in, in, uh, in their belief. So,
0: Although you sometimes have to look a bit behind the rhetoric and what they really do. I mean, the Germans had a bigger stimulus program than the French, and the rhetoric was just the opposite <laughs> yeah. of yeah. each other. Not, not- but uh, I, I take your point. Perhaps we should go briefly to the solutions that you then have. So is federalism, the structural reforms that is your – There are three big solutions we can have. So the main message is there is no muddling through anymore. You have to do either more Europe or less. So the first is structural reforms, by which you mean something very different from the structural reforms in in Troika (laughs) programs. Is that more or less creating a federation, a fiscal federation?
1: Not as far as – you know, you you don't have to go as far as as what we have in the United States. Mm -hmm. I tried to describe a few of the things. You know, having deposit insurance – you had already gone, as you said, to have harmonization. It just would be a, 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 a common deposit insurance. You would have to have. Uh, I think you have bond. to. Ha- you, you you have to have eurobonds. You have to have probably central absorption of the big cyclical things like unemployment, uh, mm-hmm. s- the cyclical part of of disability. Uh, so you, you 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 have to recognize the the nature of to try to stabilize uh, Europe and realize that when countries are down they can't support themselves mm-hmm. so that's a kind of mutual insurance okay. system so that that which is a much less degree of federalism than you would have in the United States mm-hmm. so uh, that, that's an important point that it doesn't require uh, uh, this a high degree of of integration. I think you also need to have even more attention than Europe pays today on principles of subsidiarity, that you could actually have this kind of federalism and yet have more autonomy on certain areas. So the key point here is um, where unique strong regulations are where there are cross-border externalities, where what happens in one country affects another. And that should be the basic principle. So whether the Greeks by, you know, whether in Greece the definition of milk is four days or ten days, and that was a big issue in one of the uh, Troika programs. They, they, they say you can't get money from us unless you say that milk is still fresh if it's ten days old. And, you know, the house is burning down, and that's what they're debating at the Troika level. Uh, that's something that is not a significant cross-border externality. Uh, the, you know, the, the Greeks might like having fresher milk, and you know, but that's up to them what they call fresh milk. But uh, um, uh, uh, the, um, uh, uh, the, the 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 kinds of things that where the regulations have to be important are where there are these spillovers on others.
0: So then there are two more ideas, and that's less Europe. Um, there's the amicable divorce, and there's the flexible euro. Could you briefly tell us what that, how that would work?
1: So there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, they they uh, uh, the euro was a mistake. They shouldn't have done it. But given that they've done it, uh, you're stuck. And that's the view of, of sort of the threat, that if thing, if you leave, it's bad, but it'd be even worse if you leave. And so one of the points of the book is to say that's probably wrong, that you can manage a, 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 a separation if you think about it ahead of time, not if you do it in the wrong way, but if you manage it, you can... Uh, have a disillusion. There are some ways of doing that that are better than others. So, one ex- I give one that I think is politically not going to happen, but I think it illustrates some of the economics, is for Germany to leave. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, no, I, but let me try to explain why. I'm
0: very popular with the <laughs> AFD in Germany. <laughs>
1: uh, so, yeah, I'm a little nervous about when I go do my book tour in Germany, I have to tell you. <laughs> uh, but the, the the idea is, uh, uh, why does it make a difference whether Germany leaves or or Greece or the southern European countries leave? The answer is the way the decks are denominated. And, and this goes back to, again, a lot of the thinking when they formed it didn't think about these kinds of aspects. So... Uh, If Southern Europe owes money in euros and the currency is their currency when they leave, their exchange rate is going to go down, but their ability to pay it will be unchanged and they will be able to fulfill their debt obligation. They'll even be more able to because their economy is going to get a boost. So they will be more able to pay their debts. Meanwhile, the German market, or whatever the German euro, whatever you call it, goes way up in value. And they, too, are going to be able to pay the decks because they owe decks in euros, the value of which has gone down. So everybody is going to be able to pay back their decks more easily uh, than under the current situation. But if you do it the other way...
0: Yeah, and if it's not amicable, given how you portray the Germans... (laughs) <laughs> it's a bit unlikely that they just say, "Oh yeah, 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 let's devalue your debt." So if that doesn't happen, is it then still advisable for the Greeks to go out?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, How? Well, so so uh, the the first point to uh, recognize is not the current system is very very costly. The current system is very co- you know very, particularly costly to. Countries in crisis like Greece and Spain, Portugal. Um, the gap, the output gap is enormous, but they're losing. the, And it's not only what they're losing today. Their future is being destroyed. They're, they're, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, Jobs are, you know, people in their 20s learn on the job. There are no jobs. They're not learning. Uh, productivity is go- not going to be as high. Uh, people are leaving the country, and more, young people are more talented, uh, Maybe an externality for for other countries, but... Positive
0: one for LSE, really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But that means there's a hollowing out process. And many of those people will not go back, even after the crisis, if it gets resolved. So uh, the cost of the current situation for Greece and for these other countries is very, very large. Mm. Uh, So when as recognized currency arrangements have come and gone and at the moment that they go there's a lot of anxiety and people you know and there's a little turmoil. Um, Argentina as one example and each of these are different but Argentina is, is an example where where um, before that everybody said it's a basket case and it has many structural problems but and before that, the unemployment rate was extraordinarily high. After they, they uh, uh, left the peg with the dollar, they grew at 8% from then until 2008. It was the second fastest rate of growth after China. And
0: it's a bit of a base effect as well, however, because... Oh, oh, I know,
1: but, but, but the first two or three years of growth were catching up, but then they continued to grow, and the standards of living were really much, much higher by 2008 than they were well before. So it, 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 it did work. Um, the, uh, the hardest part is going to be the uh re-denomination of the debt. And uh, basically, there are two parts of that. Uh, you know, when the U.S. went off the dollars with the gold standard, debts were redenominated. And people accepted that. And there have been often these redenominations of debt in crises. So that will have to be. There will be probably some firms that will go bankrupt, uh, and then you have to have expedited bankruptcy. Interesting, one other example of this kind of redenomination of debt Iceland, I don't know if you know was one of the countries small country, but again where uh it had the one of the deepest downturns of the advanced countries. but what it did is ha uh, it and and one of the problems was that many people in Iceland had taken out mortgages that were denominated in other currencies, and what they said is you know, we're going to have to get out of this debt. You know, if we, if we don't redenominate it, our citizens are going to be impoverished forever. And so they just redenominated the debt. And uh, you don't want to do this all the time because then debt contracts won't be meaningful. But you don't, countries don't voluntarily. Put themselves through these kinds of crisis in order to get a debt renomination. Re- I mean, that, this is not the, the idea that there's a moral hazard that countries would voluntarily go through torture in order to get a debt renomination re- is is absurd. So, so to me, uh, uh, that is the hardest part of their leaving, mm. and I think that can be managed.
0: Okay, so that is a way out. Um, I now hand it over to you. Uh, As usual, briefly say your name and what your affiliation is uh, and keep your remarks and comments succinct. I'll start up there.
3: Uh, Hi, my name's uh, Zach. My name's Zach and I'm from uh, Oxford University. Uh, I had a question how you would handle uh, any bank runs that would occur with any splintering or splitting of the euro because as soon as you uh, announce that you know, the, the ba- euros in Greece are going to be worth presumably a lot less everyone's going to have an incentive to flee the Greek bank system and, and go into the German system and as you mentioned in the first part of your talk these banks are, are critical to the domestic economy yeah.
0: was pers- oh, Can okay. we Sure. through sure. Uh, the person behind yes please sure.
4: Um, Thank you very much, Professor Stiglitz, for your um, thoughts and views. Um, I was just wondering, why will we ever not come across a book titled The U.S. Dollar and Its Threat to the U.S.? Uh, And the reason is because uh, the European Union tried to emulate what the dollar had achieved uh, for the 50 states of the U.S., despite each state having its own uh, deficits and productivity issues um, and diversity. Uh, And the second part is slightly related to your comment when you suggested that the governments, even when they've gone with a negative interest rate, that has not caused the effect as expected for the common business. Uh, Do you think that the government actually wants the common business to flourish, or is it just a matter of creation of health? Thank you.
1: Creation of what?
4: Of creation of,
0: of oh, what? wealth, yeah. There's one more question and then we'll.
4: Hi, Professor. I'm Emmanuel, I'm a student and I'm from Germany. And um, <laughs> given, given the importance you weigh on Germany in steering uh, the future of Europe, um, what is your strategy in actually getting your analysis across in Germany? And um, yes, what what is your strategy of approaching Germany and trying to influence the leading parties in Germany? Thank you very much. Thank okay. you.
0: Yeah, he will look forward to that book tour. Yes. He
1: will all watch. Well. Uh, um, Actually, uh, let me begin with that that question because I I think it it, it is an a important question. Um, I've talked about some of these ideas uh, uh, in in Germany, and um, uh, I've always I've been surprised in in some of my you know in my last trip. Uh, uh, you know there there were about 800 people, uh, mostly from one of the parties. Uh, not from Merkel's party, uh, from SVD. Uh, and uh, they were uh, even more uh, assertive than I was on these issues. So they agreed with me on most of these provisions, uh, most of these ideas. So I, I, I probably should have been you know, more qualified in, in explaining that there is diversity of views in Germany, in their, in their, in their, in their, but the mix is distinctly different. You know, the mix both among economists and among the general uh, uh, population. One of the uh, arguments that I will try to make there is that uh, uh, Germany benefits a lot from having uh, the keeping of the euro, which they have not fully recognized, that their exchange rate has been lower, and that's one of the reasons why they've been able to have these persisting surpluses, and so they they've been a big uh beneficiary of the whole of the whole system um, also try to explain you know they're going through some of the analytic arguments you know the moral hazard has been uh, exaggerated. One of the reasons i I didn't have a chance to mention before why there's this diversity of perspectives views this you know this political uh convergence that 's important to make the Europe work if you get wide divergences in creditor debtor relationships it 's going to hard it 's always hard for creditors and debtors to see the world through quite the same lens because their economic interests are very different and that 's what 's happened in Europe. There is this kind of creditor debtor divergence so that if they want to make the europe work europe work not only the Europe but the Europe work. It it is really very important that uh, the problems that I've talked about be addressed. The um, issue on the bank run is uh, a critical issue in the, you might say, in the transition. And one of the uh, reasons why uh, – so what is the answer? The answer is that uh, even before you start thinking about this, uh, you – have to start beginning you have to start thinking about how do you control a bank run and there are ways of doing that Um, in fact in in practice they did this in cyprus they did this in uh, greece Uh, you put controls on withdrawal of of money from from banks and from a country Uh, the imf supported the the idea of, of capital controls in iceland so in, and, and actually the the uh, institutional view of the IMF today is in support of capital controls mm. it 's a very big change from where it was fourteen years ago and they actually adopted this as their uh, mm. uh, institutional view uh, but one of the uh, ideas that I talk about in the chapters uh, dealing with the with the um, uh, uh, alternative solutions is to try to take advantage of uh, a digital financial system, a digital economy, uh, a, a banking system. And what I argue is that, that really, uh, currency, those pieces of paper, are so old fashioned. And so, for all of you guys you know, who are using the iPhones all the time, there is absolutely no reason to have these pieces of paper anymore. And once you go to a digital economy, it is actually much easier—a digital banking system—to prevent bank runs and to prevent uh, to, imp- to use capital controls. And uh, interestingly, Greece uh, began working. Uh, uh, the Greek Greece's uh, finance minister was aware of these issues and began working on uh, a uh, digital banking system for the country. And was actually, uh, that system was ready to go had Greece decided to leave at least he believes it was ready to go. It wasn't tested, so we don't fully know. Uh, but uh, And didn't
0: you tell us earlier that there would still be the question of trust in the Greek state being behind it? At that time, there was deposit flight out of Greece, no, no, though so the Greeks themselves didn't believe in the Greek state. So uh, well, but, but with, with a digital a dig- or non-digital system. No,
1: no, but the, the point about a digital system is you can control... Pieces of paper, people can take pieces of paper across the border in a suitcase. Mm-hmm. A digital, you have a record, and you should say, I'm sorry, you can't move those electrons <laughs> over to Germany. We just, you know, you just can't do it. It can't happen. So it gives the ability to control uh, uh, against uh, uh, flight both out of the banking system and out of the country, uh, much greater. And, by the way, there are other reasons for doing this. I mean, the only reason we don't have a fully digital uh, system basically is, uh, well, there isn't any good reason. Uh, (laughs) And uh, if we did it, we, of course, uh, would – Running that digital platform would be a public utility, and we would have to curb the ability of the MasterCard, Visa, the credit card companies to use this as a way of a monopoly power, extracting tens of billions of dollars uh, as ranks out of their control of this platform. But that would be a benefit uh, of moving to this kind of digital uh, platform. Um, the final question. Uh, 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 I spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, in the beginning of one of the chapters on exactly this question of why is it that the United States, 50 diverse states, can share a common currency and Europe can't? And what, uh, what is it about these 50 states that enables us to share a currency? And that are, are things that we've talked about, like a common currency. Um,
0: common deposit insurance
1: common deposit insurance when we go into a a recession, the federal government picks up the unemployment the excess unemployment insurance costs, so there are a whole set of cyclical adjustments, plus the fact that because English is a common language and because we 've been We've created a national identity over a long period of time. Migration is much easier. So people, you know, uh, uh, if South Dakota, things aren't going very well, people leave South Dakota. There's no sense that, oh, the South Dakota identity is going to be eroded. What will the country do without South Dakotans? Um, You know, but... People don't feel very strongly. There are a few people who do, uh, 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 but Greece would be very upset if there was nobody living in Greece, uh, except elderly people. You know, so, so there's a very, very big difference in that way between Europe and the United States.
0: But it took the United States 150 years to get there, and of the 13 biggest uh, financial crises in the world, seven were in the United States, five since 1720. Uh, So the euro has its first crisis. It's a big one. Uh, To say it's dead in the water Mm. while the U.S. is such a success story, Perhaps we're not in the same time frame.
1: Uh, well, but we live in a different world of globalization than in 1750. Interesting thing is one of the things that was uh, done very early uh, it, you know, at the time that the national government was created, you know, in the, when the Constitution was created, was uh, the mutualization of debt, uh, the, the legacy of debt of the states was gotten rid of. So one way of saying is, we, whether they understood it from economics or it was just to intuition, they realized that you weren't going to have, be able to have a common currency if you have this legacy of large decks that had been accumulated at the state level around the country. And so that was a core. And that's where there's a lot of resistance right now in Europe. So when we began our common currency, that was viewed to be an essential initial condition, and that's where, so far, Europe has not been willing to to to, to take the. It was in 1860,
0: which was still quite a, some time after the United States has been founded.
1: But yeah.
0: Okay, we have another round of question. Uh, the two in the back here. Yes, please.
3: Emeritus Professor of International Economic Integration. Uh, My question is more like a comment. Uh, Recall that uh, Germany acceded to the creation of the euro as a compromise to France to agree to the unity of Germany. Germany was never happy with the euro. Now, as you say, Merkel insists on the European Union not being a transfer union. Do you not think that they're really serious about quitting the euro and therefore support your proposition?
0: Then I saw a hand up there, yes, in the white shirt.
3: (laughs) Hi, uh, Tom Seale from Bloomberg. Um, Aside from the currency union, which I know is the subject of your book, um, in terms of sort of tax disunity, um, obviously with today's news on Ireland, um, you a month ago called Apple's arrangements a fraud um, I wondered if you'd like to follow up saying, you know, whether that fraud should be punished, and uh, whether there's a sort of moral or domestic dimension to that overall. One more next to it, then that's easiest, and i
0: come back.
3: Yes, John Pete from The Economist. Um, Britain chose to leave the gold standard in 1931, after which British ministers said we didn't know we could do that. Um, I wonder, on the basis of your analysis, why you think Greece, Spain, Italy, and others have not chosen to leave the euro? They're free countries. They could have. They could have done it.
1: Yeah, um, I think that that is a good question, and uh, uh, there was a debate in those countries about doing it. And uh, you know, in Greece, I spent some time. You know, in Greece, at, at, uh, in this period, uh, where that was up. Uh, what they wanted was to stay in the euro and not have austerity. And, you know, like a child uh, who says, uh, I want my cake and eat it too, uh, they, they didn't understand that that was not a choice that they were allowed to have. And um, in the end, uh, there, many of them mistakenly, I think, Thought that leaving the euro was leaving the EU, and leaving Europe, and they didn't—they their, their sense of European identity was very strong, and they felt that would would totally undermine it. Whereas, uh, you know, my view, maybe as an outsider, not being able to feel, fully feel, the, feel their emotional, uh, you know, was saying, look at. Uh, This is just a currency arrangement, UK, Sweden, uh, Denmark even, were part of the EU don't share a currency. A currency is not that big of a deal. You should look at it pragmatically and ask, are you going to be better off with or without it? Uh, They couldn't bring themselves, I think, to do that kind of dispassionate analysis. They really saw it as part of inseparable... Inseparable for you know, from being part of the um, uh, the EU, when I think it, it was in fact separable. On the tax question, I mean, I think that illustrates um, uh, some of the difficulties of uh, bringing a group of countries together, where you have a lot of disparate uh, um, stakes of the economy. Um, The um, one of let let me first make a more general point. One of the problems that I think they have not fully taken on board in Europe is that if you have free mobility of labor, capital, uh, um, goods, very hard to have progressive income taxes. People move. And there's a large literature in what's called the theory of fiscal federalism, theory of local public goods, that explains that you cannot, you know, with perfect mobility, have progressive taxation in those circumstances. Now, you don't have perfect mobility, so you can have some degree of progressivity. But if you have really, if, if the models that, that the neoliberals used were correct, you couldn't have any. Because you tried, and, and, and Frank showed a little bit, that there was some responsiveness when they raised their 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 tax rate. In a world in which you inequality is a very big issue, and at least I believe it's a very big issue, and I think a lot of other people do, that means that if Europe is really going to address the issues of inequality, it is going to have to... Have more europe and that there's going to have to be at a european wide level some form of progressive taxation that to me is more important than the euro you know that 's something that that but again whether you get the kind of of uh, congruences is, um, is another matter now at the other end, tax competition really undermines the ability to have a functioning state—you um, know—you have, you have a doubt competing to get uh, business on the basis of lower and lower taxes, uh, and um, in the area of corporate taxes, it's particularly multinationals can have shown an ability to to take advantage of uh, the possibility of tax competition. Uh, the in a way. Uh, there's a broad understanding of that, and most of the countries have played roughly by the rules, you might say, and, and have, have a hard, high degree of harmonization. But there are a couple jurisdictions that have tried to make, take advantage of, of, of tax competition. Now, you know, I mentioned before, where do you really need regulations where actions that you take have cross-border effects, impose harm on others, and what luxembourg did and what ireland has done does harm others they're trying to attack business away from others now in fact what ireland did in the apple case is an example of not just har- harming other people in europe it's really undermining the whole global system the whole system of globalization what you know what they said is i don't you know They, they try. You know, here you have one of the, in fact, the large firm. I think it was the largest capitalization in the world. Taking all that ingenuity that built this iPhone, that, you know, has done so well. You know, the curves and the corners really big ideas that... that. uh I know
0: which phone you have now. <laughs> um,
1: but they said so that, you know, these big advances. In, uh, and um, the largest capitalization in the world, and they take that same ingenuity to avoid paying taxes. So, uh, you know, design is done in the United States. A lot of the R&D, they're taking advantage of Mer- you know, most of our Ph.D. students are subsidized. Don't, of, nobody pays for graduate education in America. Uh, so you're taking advantage of of all the infrastructure, the rule of law, all the things you do. But you say, "Oh, I, you know, thank you very much, but I'm not going to contribute more than I decide to pay you." And Ireland gives me the possibility of production occurring in. Uh, cyberspace. So they say, you know, these wonderful ideas, that, that it, production doesn't occur in the United States, it occurs in Ireland. But in Ireland definitions, the production doesn't occur in Ireland. <laughs> so uh, they don't have to pay taxes in the United States, but according to Ireland, because, they're, because the income is not in the United States... It's in Ireland, but in Ireland they say, "Oh no!" Because by Ireland's definition, the income is not in Ireland, so we don't have to pay Irish taxes.
0: So it's something the Commission got right—that's great. I think perhaps they did. the next on this <laughs> transfer union, and then we do one last round of question. There was this comment on the transfer union in the Germans—the first oh, comment by uh, Professor
1: was I, I, I wasn't—that was a comment. I wasn't sure what I was supposed <laughs> to. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Fine. <laughs> the gentleman in the with the white shirt in front lorenzo and then i take two more take sorry. yes an eager one up there two eager ones up there
2: yes
3: so uh, lorenzo Cotone um thank you for the fascinating speech but uh, i i have the impression that you you make it a little bit too easy to leave the euro so to speak because i mean uh, you are working on the assumption that you know a country can actually uh, decide everything overnight uh, or over a weekend and without public debate uh, and then I impose capital controls or stuff like that, but uh, you know we live in democracy so effectively before we get to that point, there will be a public debate there would be a political debate uh, if the debate is within you know academic rooms like this you know it doesn 't matter much but uh, if it goes to the public, if it becomes a political debate, if there are parties that are in favor of leaving and so forth, basically you increase the threshold, the perceived threshold of redenomination risk. Once you go beyond a certain threshold, no matter what, you know, you can forget about the decision. You're already out, effective, because you go into default, you have bank runs and stuff like that. So what I'm saying is that... Uh, uh, there is no process. It's not a smooth process. Uh, it's, a, it's a process that can happen even before a decision.
0: Okay. And then there were these two. Yep. Oh. Yes.
2: Oh. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Bhumika and I'm a student here at LSE. Um, so, so uh, as you've broadly laid down your plan for saving the euro and, you know, you, you, you have said that, you know, the country should keep it and you Given a broad consensus that how to manage it. So, my question is that um, we're sitting here criticizing Euro after 17, 18 years of its conception. And I think I can say that safely that there is no economic policy that has, never been, uh, that has ever never been criticized. So, what concerns do you have regarding your own plan? You know, when probably students like us are looking back on it, you know, 10, 15 years after. So, what concerns do you think that you know, your policies could bring if they are actually implemented? I couldn't
0: understand it either it, what consensus what concerns,
2: con- concerns concerns yeah what concerns do you have about your own plan that you know if it is uh, implemented that this is something that could go wrong
1: oh okay i, I understand
0: and there was one next to yeah or well, in front yes you have it hi uh, my question is, what's your opinion about Bitcoin? Why? Not necessarily on what is the impact, what is the trend, how is it shaping the international system, globalization, but what is their perception of you, of Bitcoin and
4: cryptocurrencies, in everyone being able to use and own oh. uh, their pri- like their own banks, their own money, use it and trade it without any government regulation authority it's totally decentralized and it's unregulated freely by the markets so it's not about what it's, what's impact does it has cryptocurrencies but what is your personal philosophical opinion about the creation of this cryptocurrency thank you
1: a, well, we well i uh, uh, my own view is bitcoin's uh, 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 have been uh, greatly exaggerated, and and uh, a base, the, a common medium of exchange and store of value, is a basic public function and needs to be regulated. And the main use of bitcoins has been to circumvent tax authorities and regulation. And I think the U.S. government did the right thing of shutting it, trying to shut it down. And I think effectively, uh, it, it, it has done that. And, uh, the um I think the question um that you raised uh uh it is really behind my mind in in writing the book that uh in a way the current muddling through strategy is not a strategy because in the end there will be an event of the kind that you describe and w- w- what we w- what, Let me emphasize what he's uh, saying: is, is, it's not even an event that may actually trigger the end of the euro. It is a sense of sentiment, a worry, a concern that may lead to the flight of uh, money out of a country, and that flight of money out of the country uh, and out of the banking system will leave the government no choice but either to accept an even more austere package or leave. So they could always go this, you know, the Cyprus-Greece route and say, we surrender. You tell us, Droika, whatever you want. And I think m- many governments will say, no, we, we we saw where that led in Greece. That's not a direction we're, we're going to go. Um, the other way it all may end is, is um, you know, people talk about... Uh, I mean, what will be happening unless they make the reforms that make Euro work, is they'll be going from one crisis to another. So, for instance, right now in Italy, there's a discussion of uh, 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 what happens. Banks, uh, a particular bank may go bankrupt. The Europe rules say you can't give state aid to bail it out. That's a general principle that uh, about which I. You know, have some sympathy, but in Italy, the bondholders are different from the bondholders in other countries because many of the bondholders were sold bonds like certificates at deposit. They're not rich bond owners. They're not corporate. They're different, and so that's an example where a rule that works on average, most, of, doesn't work well for for Italy, and and is like taking money away from ordinary depositors. So the the um, one could certainly imagine that uh, this not being managed well. They're trying to you know, manage to get a private fund. They're using, actually undermining kind of rule of law of using the regulatory authority to induce banks to contribute to a fund, which at least most people think is not sufficient to bail out the bank. So the point is that if some event like that happens and it goes under, it, could undermine the lead to uh, uh, um, a, uh, a a vote uh, w- in which one or more of the parties wanting to leave become dominant. If the polls show they're going to win, that would What tri- tr- that would could trigger a a capital flight. And then the existing government, who may not even be sympathetic with leaving, will be facing this hard choice of what do I do now? What is the best uh, of the alternatives? So that's why the idea of muddling through, I think, is not is a very risky one, and is taking you know is, is leaving the future of euro to events that are very very difficult to control. So the first best is to try to put into place quickly the kinds of reforms that I talked about. Um, in the end, the other reforms, what I'm saying is here are ways it could be done more smoothly. And governments that are aware of this could begin doing their own planning in the way that the Greek government, allegedly, you know, the finance ministry, did begin their own planning. And it kept it secret. People didn't know about it, but it was doing their own planning, on the contingency that maybe they they, they would uh, be forced to leave. Now, the final question was, you know, um, uh, and it's a little bit related to to your point. You know, the United States had a long time to work these things out. Why am I so, you know, why are you so impatient? Only, it's only been eight years. How do I know that any of my plans are going to, you know, all of these are going to work out uh, any better? Um, the. The euro has not been, uh, you know, it's a short history, but it's not been a very happy history. You know, it began in 1999. The currency came, came in 2002. And the crisis happened in 2008, If you relative to the introduction of currency, six years. And then basically, most of the history has, not been, has been that it hasn't been working. I mean, so, the Euro-area so,
0: crisis started in late 2009, early
1: 2000. No, no, but I'm saying, well, yes, but but the, you. I would say that the run-up to the crisis, the beginning of the imbalances, actually began in 2000. So I would say that the problems in the euro actually began right after its creation when the markets began moving capital in a way that led to these imbalances that then had itself working out. So in my mind it was it, it never worked. So but that comes to the critical issue. If it's poorly designed, if the theory is so strong that it, as I try to argue it is, it could not have worked. So if you have a system that might work, then you still have to have problem worry about implementation. But this is a system that could not have worked. And so that's why I said in the beginning, the best of policymakers. it wasn't just that they didn't have the right guy at the wheel in the finance ministry in one country or another. It was the best of guys managing it could not have worked. The only way they could have made it work would have been to change the basic rules underlying the Eurozone. And then they could have. But that's exactly the reforms that I'm talking about. That is the only way uh, to, to make it work. The reason that I'm a little bit pessimistic is they haven't been learning from the experiences in the ways that you would have hoped. So, for instance, what was the response of, you know, what, what was the reform that Europe agreed on after, you know, 2009-10, it wasn't working? Well, they said, obviously the problem was the countries need stricter fiscal discipline. Well, Greece, the story was fiscal discipline, but that wasn't the problem in Spain. Uh, it wasn't the problem in, in in Ireland. They had a surplus and a low debt GDP ratio. So you can't say that that was the cause of the problem. So seeing that, you know, your diagnosis at that point should have been it's not over fiscal profligacy. It's one of the sources of a problem, but it's clearly not going to guarantee this is going to work. What was it? It's you took away the exchange rate and you didn't put anything in its place. What do
0: you make of the fact that just recently was the first case after these hardened rules where Portugal and Spain came close to being fined under the new hard rules? And it was Schäuble who called off the fine. Juncker g- commented with the word. We don't have to be more Catholic than the Pope, but let it be known that it was the Pope who wanted a fine off Syria. So Wolfgang I has not implemented his own tough rules. So they yeah. talk the talk; yeah. that's for domestic consumption, and they do something else.
1: But it was interesting in to me that the European Commission pushed that far in imposing those rules. It was at the last minute that they 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 did it, and and. That is the sort of when you say. That's the sort of what I would say, careening from near crisis to near crisis. Uh, that in the end they pulled back. You know the nature of brinkmanship is that sometimes you go over the brink, and and so they that you know you. I couldn't believe it when they say here Spain and. Portugal just barely beginning to recover. You know, they say it's a victory for Spain. Unemployment is down to 20 percent. Spain is healthy. And and to me, when they said, you know, that, that, that declaration of victory was a peculiar declaration of victory. And at that point to say, oh, now that you're already back to health, we really want you, we're going to fine you because you haven't had enough austerity was – uh, an example of a rigidity in the, in the bureaucracy in the European Commission. And it was the European Commission that wanted to impose it.
0: it was actually very conflicted about it, but yeah.
1: But that's what their decision was, to, to, to propose doing it. And in the end, it, 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 they withdrew it. You're right. And so that's the kind of brinkmanship and the kind of uh, precariousness that I think is going to characterize... The Eurozone, unless they make these deeper reforms.
0: Okay, yeah. So, (laughs) dismal science at its best, it has to be said. Uh, Thank you all very much for coming, and thank you, Professor Stiglitz, for having such (laughs) an.